From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Professor Anders Nielsen will join us to talk about the science of supercooled water. So stay tuned for all this here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. The story of water goes back many centuries. Before the advent of modern science, philosophers had recognized water as one of the five primary elements of the universe. Well, we now know that while water is the basis of biology, we also know that it is not an element. It is composed of uh, oxygen and hydrogen. In spite of the simple molecular shape of water, very little is known about the intermolecular interactions and structures that give water its unique properties, its boiling point, its structure as ice. These underlie some of the biological mechanisms that make life possible. Well, the availability of advanced X-ray techniques have now allowed scientists to understand some of these basic properties of water. Uh, well, joining us today is our very special guest, uh, Professor Anders Nielsen, who tells us about his research in elucidating the structure of water at the molecular level. Um, Professor Nielsen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, it's a pleasure for me to, to participate in this program. So, f first of all, uh, congratulations on your paper in Nature. Uh, it's It's been a real breakthrough in terms of our understanding. So, could you give us a little bit of background behind this research and the experiment that culminated in this uh, discovery? Everybody knows that water is very important, and, and you gave a very nice introduction there. But as we know, um, this planet Earth is blue when we look at it. Water is everywhere. Water comes into our life. We think if we are searching for life in the universe, we are looking for water. So water is really something of extraordinary importance to us. But there is another reason why water is interesting. It's also very strange. Most people would assume that some be <clears throat> water being of such an importance that we would fully understand it. But water is very, very odd. Uh, most people might actually recognize that in a very simple experiment you can do at home. You, you, you take a glass of water and you put ice in it, and you will see that the ice flows. Uh, nearly all other chemicals, uh, their frozen phase, would have higher density and will sink. But ice instead flows. Mm -hmm. uh, another extraordinary property is that water has what's called a density maximum. So when you cool a liquid down in temperature to lower the temperature, uh, nearly everything uh, contracts. Or, or you, if you go in the other way, when you increase the temperature, everything expands. So, so does all normal liquids, like alcohol or oil or, or vinegar or whatever you have. Um, but water 
contracts as well until it reaches a temperature of 4 degrees Celsius. After that, it actually expands upon cooling. And, and if you can, you can also go down to temperature below freezing, what's called supercool water. You just have to have the water very, very clean. And, and you can even do that in, in your container, in your, putting in a, a, a bottle of water in, in the freezer. You can actually supercool it a little bit if it is very clean. And then water continu continues to actually expand even, even more as you cool it down. For instance, also another strange property, water uh, flows much easier if you put pressure on it. All other chemicals, when you put pressure on it, it flows less easily. So water has altogether roughly 64 of these what's called anomalous properties where it behaves simply unusual, simply very strange. And um, so there is a very big, let's say, scientific question or or, or has been an inquiry for, for the last 30, 40 years to try to understand uh, actually where these properties come from in terms of the molecular structure. And, and, um, and since water is not, um, let's say, uh, solid with a crystal where you will have all molecular positions to be in a, in a unique side, so to speak, with the unique distances between each other, it's a liquid that is constantly changing it's been always very challenging to, to actually get uh, precise information out about atomic positions. So what we undertook uh, in this research was to really see if we can go to uh, very deep supercooling, since these properties, how they behave uh, strangely, so to speak, uh, they become more and more strange the more you cool them. And, and there were evidence that that uh, some of these properties might actually seem to be going to, to some sort of strange value of, of infinity, like it would have a phase transition or even a critical point. A critical point is when, when, when two, uh, uh, two phases, let's say a gas and a liquid, vanish and become only one phase. That's a critical point. So some of these uh, properties were really seem to go towards infinity at this very, very low temperature. But nobody could go, ever go there uh, at these very low temperatures because ice would simply be forming too fast to perform any experiments. In this study that was published in Nature, uh, we did, let's say, two things to address these issues. One was to develop a technique where we could cool water very, very rapidly and then probe it very, very fast so we could beat ice formation. And the second thing is that we used X-rays to, to look at it, and, and, and X-rays are very powerful in order to see atomic positions, even though it's not a crystalline substance, but we can at least see, let's say, where, where, where the relative average positions are uh, between different atoms. So this is what, what we did, was to really use the X-ray laser at Stanford, which can provide very, very short X-ray pulses. We call it 50 femtoseconds. It's a zero point with a dot, and then uh, we have uh, actually 14 zeros ending with a five. So it's a very, very short pulse. And uh, we cool it very, very fast, and then we hit them with these X-ray pulse, and we can look at the structure as we actually went down to these extremely low temperatures where water is something very weird, <laughs> so to speak. You mentioned that you had to super cool it so that it would not crystallize the way you... It would normally crystallize, is that right? 
So you, you can supercool water if you have a very clean, no dust particles or anything where it's very easy for ice to actually nucleate. So, and you have a very small volume. Uh, so you can supercool pretty easy down to minus 20, minus 25 degrees to do that. To go beyond that is very, very difficult. And there is a limit where people have never been able to even study how fast ice is formed. Uh, they have been able only to go to roughly minus uh, 38 degrees. We, in this experiment, could go now to minus 46 degrees because we can look at water, actually, and we can, see, we can maintain the liquid state uh, on millisecond timescales, and then we could probe it in this very low-temperature regime. In the X-ray, the samples, how small a sample can you use to, to characterize the water? We used, uh, for the lowest temperature, we used uh, liquid droplets, and they were roughly 10 micron in diameter. That's still bulk water because we are talking about an enormous amount of trillions and trillions and trillions of water molecules in there. Uh, but we use these very small droplets because we use a technique called evaporative cooling. So we injected these droplets into a vacuum and then water molecules are leaving the droplets. Not so many as to change actually the size of it. Yes, very, very relatively small amount. But as the water, water molecule leaves the droplets, uh, they have to take the heat of vaporization out of the droplet. And that it makes it that, that it actually cools very rapidly. It's like it's sweating. Yes, exactly. It's sweating. That's a good analogy. And, and, and by that, uh, actually, the temperature lowers very quickly. And then as with time, how long they have traveled in vacuum, the temperature gets lower and lower. And then we, at different times, so to speak, or actually distances in this case, uh, we hit them with the, with the, this X-ray pulse, and we only hit each droplet with one X-ray shot. From the X-ray laser, it's so intense that we only need to hit them once, and then we get the diffraction pattern on the detector, and we can analyze that. And uh, but the droplet with the explode after we hit them with the X-ray pulse. But since the uh, information travels with the speed of light, we get everything out before anything has time to move in the droplets. This is very fundamental science that you're working on. In terms of the prevailing notions of how water behaves at this level, uh, has your research overturned any of the existing ideas? I, I would say that uh, in this particular study, let me take one step back here. I think if you look at the problem like water, there are we are laying a, a puzzle and, and we have different pieces to the puzzle. Uh, there's never going to be one single experiment that's going to provide all the insights. Uh, there is um, just a lot of different uh, experiments uh, that provided them the pieces in, uh, on the puzzle. So I think the picture that is emerging where also this study helps is that uh, water has fluctuations that is generating two different classes of structures that are separated on certain length scale and time scales, how they fluctuate. So you can think a little bit like there are clumps of, of water molecules in the liquid that has a certain structure. Sometimes I, I call it like uh, fricadels in the soup, so to speak. If you think about that the soup is a little bit of water molecule that is not so very tightly bound together, they're very mobile and so on. And then we have uh, fricadels in the soup, so to speak. And these are clumps where water molecules are forming uh, more stronger hydrogen bonds and they're forming a structure that locally, only locally are similar to ice. It's not an ice crystal, it's just a local structure of what we call tetrahedral coordination, a little bit similar to ice. 
and and these fricadelles, so to speak, uh, dissolve back into the soup, and then they pop up somewhere else. This is what we call fluctuation. This fluctuates back and forth, and uh, as you cool the liquid down, you get more and more of these fricadelles, so to speak, and they become larger and larger, and they also are stable under longer time scales. But these are yes fluctuating. This is not phases in the liquid, but they are fluctuating. And our study shows that as we are cooling water down to very low temperatures, the average structure at this very low temperature is dominated completely by the structure we, we, we expect in the fricadels. Whereas at ambient temperatures, where our ordinary life is, is dominated more by the soup. What is interesting, though, is that temperature where these, so to speak, fricadels or these uh, tetrahedral structures that maybe are clumps of 20-30 water molecules, they start to appear actually at probably around 50 degrees Celsius, something like that. And, and so when we are getting into the regime of what we call ambient water where life exists and our ordinary life is, uh, we start to actually have these uh, coming in as fluctuations. And then uh, the reason that water has these very odd properties has to do that we have these fluctuations around two types of structures with a certain length scale and time scale I mentioned. Whereas normal liquids would have only fluctuations like a thermal motion around only one structure. The basis of all these interactions, are they solely from hydrogen bonding or are there some other effects that, that are going on? The interaction with the water molecules are, of course, very important with hydrogen bondings, but there are also some other interaction that is uh, equally important that we call van der Waals interaction, which is typical interaction that is very relatively weak, like you would have between uh, a rare gas atom interacting with another rare gas atom. So that type of interaction is also existing there. So in the in the norm in the in the in the, what I would call the soup, or a little bit more the normal liquid component, uh, we have much less hydrogen bonding. And, and, and there, there is a more balance between this van der Waals bonding and, and the hydrogen bonding. It's in the fricadels that the hydrogen bonding becomes extremely prominent because then it builds up this tetrahedral network, uh, where you, what, what you have typically in ice. So what makes water unique compared to other liquids is that it, it can form this tetrahedral network. And that has to do with that, that hydrogen bonding is very directional. It's directly between, um, let's say, you have a covalent bond of an oxygen and hydrogen atom, and then you form a hydrogen bond from that hydrogen atom to another oxygen atom in a neighboring water molecule. And this is typically very linear. So the angle between the oxygen, hydrogen, and oxygen is 180 degrees. So it's very linear. We call that a very directional hydrogen bond. So the uniqueness of water is that it can form four of these, one out from each hydrogen atom, and then accepting one from, uh, accepting two on the oxygen atom, and that forms this tetrahedral network. Most other liquids cannot form that type of network, and, and, and this is what gives water its unique properties. So it can be in, let's say, it can be in this more soup or normal liquid state and being this very highly tetrahedral state. You know, in terms of like some of the, the fundamental um, laws that we learn in basic chemistry, uh, I, I presume this obeys all the 
you know, properties of, say, the octet rule or uh, the valency, or are there any violations going on? No, I mean, it, it's, it's simply that, uh, as we learn in chemistry, as you, as you probably was mentioning, the electron pairing model, so to speak, or the octet rule, that is typically when we think about covalent bonds or <coughs> ionic bonds. The hydrogen bond is a little bit of a... It doesn't really easily explain based on such a model. The hydrogen bond, often we think about it that it has to do with that the hydrogen atom is a little bit charged and, and you have a positive charge and you have a negative charge oxygen atom and they can come close. Mm -hmm. But there are also other important ingredients in the hydro, uh, to form the hydrogen bonds where it has to do with um, if you would pull the hydrogen atom and oxygen atom very close to each other, they will cause repulsion called because the electron clouds, um, the water molecule has a filled octet, right? So as you will approach these close to each other, they will therefore repel each other because the octet rule is, so, so to speak, satisfied within each molecule and therefore it cannot form a covalent bond between water molecules. Um, but there is an ability for water molecules to rearrange its electronic structure slightly to allow the hydrogen atom to come actually close to a neighboring oxygen atom in, in, in another molecule to form that electrostatic hydrogen bond. Mm. And, 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 and so that is uh, a very unique property of, of water, which is also shares with proteins, DNA, and so on to form these type of hydrogen bonds. We also know that nitrogen and fluorine are capable of hydrogen bonding. Would we see you know, similar phenomena if we were to cool, say, ammonia or hydrogen fluoride at you know, at their cooling temperatures? No, because, um, uh, or, or also alcohols can form hydrogen bonds. Uh, no, the reason is simply this uniqueness of water that it can form four hydrogen bonds over each water molecule. So hydrogen fluoride, which is HF, it can only form then one hydrogen bond, typically uh, out of the fluorine connecting to one hydrogen atom on the neighboring uh, hydrogen fluoride. It's this uniqueness of water to form four, uh, uh, which gives this tetrahedral structure. Ammonia could form then only one hydrogen, accepting only one hydrogen bond from the nitrogen atom, or giving then one hydrogen bond out from each um, hydrogen atom. So it cannot go in and form these tetrahedral structures that would then be uh, giving rise to this, what I call these tetrahedral structures in these fricadels, so to speak, in the soup. And of course, the reason that water is so unique is that um, the free energy or, or the energy state as it is in this soup and the fricadels is actually very close to each other. Mm -hmm. So it can be in both forms. It's not the property of the hydrogen bonds that makes this. It's the property that water can form tetrahedral structure that is nearly degenerate of similar energy to another rather different structure. It's uh, really fascinating work. I'm, I'm just curious, how did you get interested in this topic? It's an interesting question. Sometimes uh, life is guiding you in a, in, a, in, a, in a certain way. I was working, I'm coming actually from another field. My, my, my expertise is very much that I have been using x-rays to study matter for, for a long time, particularly chemical bonds, and in particular with chemical bonds on the surface uh, related to catalysis and other type of phenomena, which we still are doing. But 15 years ago, I was seeing if we can use these techniques to look also at some of these molecules that we're doing in the, on the surface in solution. And in this case, it was a very simple amino acid, glycine, 
and I want to look with this spectroscopic technique on the glycine as we will uh, in in water, looking at the nitrogen and oxygen atoms and carbon atoms in glycine. And in this experiment, I had to take a, make a background spectrum of, of water. And when I saw that background spectrum of water, I said, my God, this, that, this doesn't make sense. There's something very weird here. So that started to unravel that we discovered, <coughs> discovered then that, that actually there were some new information we got about water. And, and this sort of led to that we started to study more and more water and, and so on. So you can say that it was a coincidence that I, I stumbled over something and discovered something was very weird. And, and, and that led to a 15-year journey now of studying water. Wow, that's really an inspiring story. I, I think it really shows that in science, a lot of times um, things happen by serendipity and that uh, it's really important to keep an open mind. Exactly, and, and actually the most exciting times in science is typically not what you see, what you expect. If you go in to do an experiment and sometimes to confirm a hypothesis that some, someone has or, or a model and so on, and you do the experiment and, uh, and you see something different, then, then that is really exciting. Uh, for some people that might be very challenging because I, I know even for my students, I sometimes talk with them and they said, oh, the experiment didn't work out. They don't want to talk anymore about it. And then I ask, well, what do you mean it doesn't work out? Can you explain for me and so on? And then it turns out, it, indeed, the experiment worked. Of course, yes, that the result was not what we expected. <laughs> <laughs> and then I always tell them, oh, but this is more interesting. <laughs> I understand that you were also recently on uh, the TV program Through the Wormhole. Uh, I'm just curious, what was that like? was an interesting, uh, let's say, experience. I, I, I was contacted by uh, the Science Channel uh, to participate about water. I didn't really know what the whole episode was about. And um, so we were filming actually for 14 hours on that, or my little part of that episode. And, and of course, a lot of things that I thought was be very, very important uh, was not part of, of, of the description because I wanted to bring in much more of these unusual properties of water and talk about these. Um, the topic where there were uh, ocean things and so on, maybe cut it a little bit, sounding like I made a very strong statement, which was actually not my purpose. So that was um, probably a little bit more from, the, from the, their side to make it more interesting. I think the the episode in general is quite interesting since they are talking about a lot of life or bacteria or neural network that can exist in the ocean and um, how the water itself is playing its role in that I think is very very much unknown. So I know there is a lot of other very unusual phenomena about water which is maybe even going towards philosophy or spirituality. <laughs> And, and, uh, and this is always a very big controversial topic. People have asked me over the years about this, but my actually approach is to say that we don't really know anything about it because so far I would say that our understanding on the molecular level of water is still in its beginning. Would having stronger X-ray sources help you to understand these problems better or is it more in terms of how you design these experiments? It's, of course, going to be both. Uh, 
I think we have uh, with the new X-ray lasers, a laser there is going to be a completely new type of classes of experiment we, we, we will do. And we are starting to do some of these experiments. Um, so I think there will be very exciting uh, opportunity in, in, in the future. And um, so many, many things to, to understand. Uh, in particularly going to be very important to understand the coupling between let's say uh, local structure and dynamics because the the liquid itself uh, is of course rearranging itself on time scales and and nothing is static so to speak so this is going to be very very important to understand that and and the second thing that will be very important we need to get information on is how we can see correlations on much longer length scales but that we can see today are the regions in the liquid that actually are correlated with each other that we haven't been able to detect today. And you mentioned that uh, you start your work with catalysis. I- I'm just curious, you know, there's a lot of experiments going on in terms of looking at, say, titanium dioxide or zinc oxide as uh, a photocatalyst where it can split, you know, water into hydrogen and, and oxygen for the purpose of making fuel. Uh, you know, from a theoretical point of view, do you think you know, there's a easy way to, to develop these catalysts based on the science we know? Yes, actually, it's, it's actually a topic I'm working on <laughs> as well. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I think there is, uh, there is a challenge to do um, uh, what we call artificial photosynthesis, um, where we could generate fuel from sunlight. Uh, we need to develop more, more catalysts. For instance, titanium oxide uh, as a catalyst for, for these processes is actually a very poor catalyst. It just was the one first demonstrated. So we need to have much more efficient catalysts for these for these um, for these processes. My belief is that um, uh, I think we will develop this. Um, uh, it's there are probably in 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 a couple of years there will be a device that actually can do this, but still contains very expensive uh, components. Uh, because often the elements, particularly the catalysts that can efficiently do these processes, are typically platinum or or ruthenium containing uh, materials, and and this is extraordinary expensive uh, material. So we need to develop other type of classes of of uh, catalysts, for instance, and and so on. But I'm part of uh, a very big project in California called the Joint Center for Artificial Photosynthesis. Uh, which is sort of funded on a, on a $25 million level per year. So it's a huge effort uh, to really realize this dream. And uh, I think, I, will, I, my, I believe that in, within, within a period of five, five to ten years, this will be, have been realized. Professor Nielsen, it's, it's been a really um, exciting talk today. Uh, I mean, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Are, are there any last uh, words you'd like to add about yourself or your work? What I always find fascinating in science is to, first of all, have a very, let's say, to, to work on problems that we think are of importance, but then go very deep down and ask the fundamental questions. Um, so whatever, for instance, we talk about what is water, <clears throat> what is the fundamental properties of water, can we understand them? What is the hydrogen bonding? What is the nature of that? Uh, if we talk about artificial photosynthesis, can we understand in detail the mechanisms, how even atoms or electrons move during these type of processes? That is what I find fascinating in science, the work of problems that is the importance of mankind, 
but be on the fundamental science side of it. And, and I, I think that uh, is really what the future can bring a lot of excitement to for many scientists. Dr. Nielsen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, we were just talking to Professor Nielsen of uh, Stanford and Stockholm University. He's a scientist at the Stanford uh, Light Source. Thank you so much again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to participate in this program. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out on the web at www.groks.net, on Facebook and Twitter. And you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Music